us Dr. Natalie Gregory, board certified OBGYN. She's going to chat with us about the implications the overturning of Roe versus Wade is really having on her profession and her day-to-day -day life. Welcome, Dr. Gregory. Thank you so much for having me on, Catherine. We're so nice to meet you, Amanda. Yeah, nice to meet you. We're so pumped to talk about all of this. There's a ton of stuff. And I know what last week is a state house. You went up to Columbia and testified. Yes. For the House of Representatives, they had an ad hoc committee meeting to hear citizen testimony on their proposal to inf to basically legislate a total abortion ban in South Carolina. More so than the heartbeat bill? Or yes, more so than the heartbeat bill. Okay. Yeah. And so Amanda's in North Carolina. So I definitely want to talk specific to South Carolina mostly. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know, Amanda, if you know all of the kind of the implications of the heartbeat bill, but I wanted to start off with the connection. So Dr. Gregory and I, we've worked together since 2017. What is that? Really? Is it been that long? What is that? Yeah. Is that six years? Seven years? Five years. I don't know. Long time. But I wanted to say that because a lot of this, the reason I wanted to have her on is because I'm the person that she has to ask the questions to. <laughs> um, like the letter that you read at the state house went to me first, I think. Yes, it did. Yeah. And I read it like Friday night at 10 p.m. And I'm like, these are like legitimate questions that. It's so crazy. Yeah. Administration just doesn't have answers to. And it's been what, two and a half weeks and we still don't have the answers to your questions. No. And the, the reality is, is that they're almost rhetorical questions because nobody has the answers. And that's sort of the point is the, the you can't legislate things that are not black and white. And I don't think that they understand the implications that it has on all of all of the people that live in the state. Yeah. So let's, that's absolutely the point. So let's go back. What is your background? Can you share with our listeners kind of your background? Obviously they know that you're a practicing OBGYN, but when yeah. did you get started? How long have you been practicing, et cetera? Yeah. So I grew up in Tennessee and then I went to Presbyterian college here in South Carolina in Clinton. And then I went to the medical university of South Carolina for med school. And then I really wanted to be an internist or a pediatrician, and I did not think anything about doing women's health care. <laughs> and I delivered my first baby in the middle of the night, and it was like the most amazing thing. And Aww. I love the surgical aspects of it and the primary care aspects of it. And it's it's a it's a specialty, I think, that kind of offers all of it. It's I think it's the most wonderful specialty ever. And that's why I always tell all my students to go into OBGYN. Um, but anyway, I did my residency out in Colorado. So four years in Denver and then moved back to Charleston. And I've been in the same practice since I graduated um, right here in Mount Pleasant. We practice in Georgetown and we have an office on Daniel Island and one in West Ashley. So kind of all over the Charleston area. So I've been here since 2009. Dang. What, gosh, it's already 20. So what is that? I didn't realize you'd only been at this one practice since you yeah. graduated. Wow. And I don't, I don't think that's really the usual. I think most people don't it's necessarily not. stay with the first place that yeah. they go. Um, 
Well, I wanted to kind of do a shout out to like your character. So when we, when we typed this up and then shared it and people sent in um, questions, one of your patients reached out to us and I'm not going to name who it is, but you're going to know exactly who it is. Um, and she just said, I have no questions for Dr. Gregory, but she's been my OBGYN since I was 16 years old. She's counseled me, prayed with me and celebrated with me. She saved my life when I was losing my baby at 17 and a half weeks from P-prom. Is that how you would pronounce, is that how you pronounce it? Yes, um, due to a septic uterus and 16 months later, she delivered my beautiful, healthy baby girl. I absolutely love that woman. I know you know who it is. <laughs> That's so sweet. And I just had to share that because I think, and I know you shared this on a previous podcast this week, like you're a pastor's daughter, right? Yeah, I'm a PK. A pastor's daughter. Preacher's kid. Preacher's kid. You are like the most caring for your patients, like the whole pro-life, pro-choice thing. Like we don't even need to even use those terms, but like your patients come first. Yes. Always. And I think that's uh, a perfect we joke example. that my older brother is a doctor too. He's an orthopedic surgeon, but we joke that if you mix ministers and biology teachers, you get doctors. Um, Cause my mom was a biology teacher and professor at the college of Charleston eventually. Um, and my dad's a Presbyterian minister. Oh my God, so I'm actually an elder in the Presbyterian church. Okay. I'm not currently serving, but once you're ordained, you're forever an elder in the Presbyterian church. Oh, that's funny. So cool. And I've been ordained online so I could marry my friend. <laughs> <laughs> and funny. I married a patient in labor. Did I ever tell you that? Oh my. I had a patient who came in. She was supposed to get married that day and she broke her water. And she came in and I was like, you know, I'm actually ordained and oh. Connie Mahan, who's like the greatest nurse ever. I love her. She's a notary. So she got her epidural and then she got married. Oh my God. <laughs> Stop. That's, awesome. <laughs> That's an awesome story. Well, I just totally wanted to put that in there because we're going to talk about P-Prom. We're going to talk about your situation and savings people's lives with these rules. So like, Let's just jump in. I shared your letter on the stories for what the fertility. So people have probably mm -hmm. read it. We got a ton of great feedback of like, wow, I never really thought about those situations. And you're not going to think about them unless you even know that they exist, right? Like who knows right. about a molar pregnancy unless probably all of our listeners. <laughs> but I hope you don't ever know what a molar pregnancy is. I hope never in your life anybody has to explain to you what it means to have pre-viable preterm premature rupture of membranes i hope that never ever is in your realm of knowledge mm -hmm. but let me tell you that as a provider I, i'm not an abortion provider i do private practice i counsel people about everything and there are still situations in which a termination of the pregnancy is the safest, the, the evidence proves that that is the best course of action with the most benefit and the least risks. And so I have to advocate for those patients because this isn't an abortion issue. This isn't like a, I just want to terminate my pregnancy issue. This is healthcare. And that's why abortion is part of healthcare. You may not like it. I don't like it either. But that's part of it, unfortunately. So I want to, can we like talk about every one of those topics? Like Yes. Topic and, and I could have kept going on this list too. Yeah. So like. But we can go down each one of them. 
Yeah, let's do it because I, I, people are really interested in like with my family, I have kind of just stayed off social media because I've had COVID, I'm pregnant, I don't feel great and I just don't have the capacity to answer the questions because I don't know, mm -hmm. I really don't know the answers and I'm really passionate about the medical part of it, you know, ectopic. So let's start with ectopic. I mean, has there been clarity given on this? No, no, there is not clarity. And I think that with ectopic pregnancies most of the time hopefully you diagnose it before the point at which there's a heartbeat but some people don't know that they're pregnant until they come in with a ruptured ectopic um do you know in the iraq war the first wartime surgery that they did was an ectopic pregnancy of a soldier that got deployed and didn't know she was pregnant oh my goodness <laughs> isn't that so interesting anyway it's an emergency procedure it has to be done so the the my beef comes in when it says it has a heartbeat and if there's a heartbeat then that pregnancy is protected by the state of south carolina and there's not a lot of debate in the medical community about the best way to proceed there i think most people understand that you either do a laparoscopy or an open procedure or you treat with methotrexate um, sometimes you can manage it expectantly if you have a patient that has good follow-up, but the pregnancy must end or it will eventually rupture whatever it is attached to and potentially almost certainly kill the mom. Mm -hmm. um, so I, you can't really legislate that. And I do think that the bill would allow for us to treat that without a big concern because it, it, you can almost interpret an ectopic pregnancy as an early pregnancy loss, similar to a spontaneous abortion. Um, but still, it's got a heartbeat. Technically, it's protected in the state of South Carolina. And I think that's when the pause comes in from your- Right, so, so you're in the ER, it's two in the morning. I do an ultrasound, I see you have blood in your belly. I diagnose an ectopic pregnancy. I call my team in. Anesthesia comes in, the scrub team, the, you know, it's a lot of people that it takes to, to do a surgery. So if I have to stop and call the chairman of the department who's asleep or the CEO of the hospital or my attorney or the police or like, I don't know, who am I supposed to call? To call a friend? Do I ask anesthesia and we just like are cool with it? What if somebody disagrees with me? There, there's no guidance there. And a woman that's bleeding internally doesn't have time for me to figure that out then. Yeah. So it's my job to be prepared and to know what the step is so that I can do it without even thinking about it. We need to be teaching our residents this stuff. We need to be teaching our nursing staff. They need to learn what the protocol is going to be. But Right now, who knows? And I think ectopic is going to be like probably the most duh one, but we'll get right. into like molars and, and, you know, cervical cancer, all this kind of stuff. And I know to some listeners, they might be like, no, it's allowed. But I'm telling you, like you and I both work in this mm -hmm. every day. And to your point, like, who do you call? They're telling her to call someone. And that someone isn't saying I'm available 24 seven. So right. then I can totally understand from your perspective. You're like, but what do I do? This ha I have to have a clear ABCD process for when because this the consequence is a felony. 
So like if, so for example, like if a nurse does, which happens all the time, which if a nurse doesn't agree with this now, they go report it. And I've I've been on the other end of actually in the last four weeks has happened twice, not a topic, but a, a termination, not for medical reasons, like an emergency situation. And the nurse has reported to the CEO. We've now had to open compliance investigations Mm -hmm. and this poor physician is going to have to go testify. Yeah. And, and, you lose time, money, energy, you get gray hair and wrinkles. That is not cool. I mean, th- what other specialty has to do that? I know. I know. Okay. So let's jump from a topic. Cause I think that one's pretty like straightforward a little bit. Right. Little bit. I do too. And I don't think that the legislature is going to really have a big impact on ectopics. Okay. My point to, I don't know who the representative was, the, guy that asked me the question during the testimony last week and he was trying to say that the bill clear he wanted to know which which bill I was referencing and I mean as far as I was aware we were there to discuss more restrictions on the current bill which is why I was there to speak out um but there is a a line that says that it's for the protection of the mother to avert death but it puts in there that reasonable physician. And after listening to the first two physicians speak, that they, they're not reasonable. I wouldn't want them taking care of my daughter. Mm-hmm. It's so opinion-based. And Correct. like, how are you supposed to do your job on a, based on opinions when everyone has a different opinion? When you risk a felony. Correct. Okay, so let's jump to the next two because I'm actually really curious about this. And these were the okay. two we got the most questions about. Molar pregnancies mm-hmm. and cervical cancer diagnosis while pregnant. Okay, so molar pregnancies are abnormal pregnancies where the placental tissue starts to grow kind of out of control. And it's supposed to kind of invade in that first layer of the uterus to get access to the maternal blood supply. And then it's sort of of supposed to stop. And so this placental type tissue can invade deeper into the muscle of the uterus. But more importantly, it, it makes massive amounts of HCG. And so the pregnancy test would be really strongly positive. But then you get HCG levels of like a thousand. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sorry, like a million. Yeah. Like well, I, I way, mean, way, way higher than what they are normally are in a pregnancy. And then that placental tissue fills the uterus and it's highly vascular and there's different, there's a partial molar pregnancy and a complete molar pregnancy. And sometimes they can be associated with a fetus. It's not a normal fetus, but it can develop to the point of having a heartbeat. There've even been pregnancies where it's a twin pregnancy and one is normal and the other is a molar pregnancy. I can't even imagine the ethics and everything going on there, but you can suspect a molar pregnancy on ultrasound and based on symptoms, it can put you into thyroid storm. It can make you have hypertension. It can cause hyperemesis and to the point of admission to the hospital. Um, You have to evacuate the uterus. You have to get that tissue out of there. Mm -hmm. Even when you do get it all out of there, there's a small chance that it could kind of start to grow back or even metastasize into other places, classically the lungs that can go to the brain. And we have very specific protocols for how often do you 
check their HCG levels because that's a tumor marker at that point. Mm-hmm. After you evacuate the uterus, so after you do a DNC, at which point they're very high risk for having hemorrhages. Um, sometimes if they've completed childbearing, the treatment is a hysterectomy. Like you don't even do a DNC, you just take the whole kit and caboodle out. Wow. Um, but then afterwards you have to follow their HCG levels every week until they go to zero. And then you follow them for every month and they have to use good contraception because if they got pregnant again, it would go up and you wouldn't know if it was a gestational trophoblastic neoplasia, which can then become things like choriocarcinoma, which is a hundred percent treatable because these are rapidly dividing cells. So treating it with methotrexate, which is folic acid inhibitor can cure you. So it's not typically something that we think of as deadly. It's something that can be very, very dangerous, but it's also super, super rare. I mean, people are like, like like a mole, like in the ground, like a little mole. You're like, yeah, kind of like a mole, but it's a molar pregnancy. (laughs) So I just want to ask this question. There's never, has there ever been an actual molar pregnancy that was viable and resulted in a live birth? Um, no, no, not that I know of. So there was a queen in, I'm not sure where, there was a queen in Europe who had a molar pregnancy and she began to deliver the vesicles. So they formed these like little bubbles and she was birthing these little bubbles and they were like naming them. (laughs) Um, Because they were heirs to the throne. Oh, because she okay. was royalty. Okay. Yeah. What were you going to say, Amanda? I was just going to say one of my girlfriends just had a molar pregnancy and there was two babies and she wound up losing both of them though. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and she, she then had to get a DNC and the same thing they had to watch. I mean, they're still like, she's still going back for monitoring. And Amanda, I'm curious, how late was that in her pregnancy? Was it early? She had, no, she was, oh gosh, she was 12 weeks and had no like bleeding no nothing she went she was doing her like gender reveal she went in literally to get um like the blood work done to see what like gender the baby was and everything and then that's when they found out that's what I was I have a very close friend she's now delivering her baby boy like next week but same thing she was super pumped they had actually announced the pregnancy and at like 14 weeks it was a partial but I mean I just don't even you know I guess they see it in an ultrasound or see indications and same thing she you know lost it looks like a snowstorm on the ultrasound so now you usually see the ultrasound and it looks like this little rim of gray and then there's the black and then you see the white baby right Mm -hmm. So for molar pregnancy, the whole thing looks like sort of like Swiss cheese, or they say a starry sky. So the whole thing is just filled with tissue with these little vacuoles or these little open spaces that are full of fluid. Um, And if you actually look at the tissue, it looks like little teeny bubbles. So historically, you guys have a protocol. And are you saying now you're still kind of like... And I'm sure we're talking about South Carolina, but I'm sure in other states like methotrexate, is that starting to get harder and harder to get or not necessarily? I don't think so. I mean, methotrexate, um, our, our protocol, usually we use methotrexate for treating ectopic pregnancies. If I were to use methotrexate in the setting of a molar pregnancy or for follow-up afterwards, that would actually be done by GYN oncologist. 
Got it. Okay. So at that, th that would be the difference between a generalist managing it. And so I, I can't speak to the getting methotrexate for that, but that, at that point, it's sort of like, this yeah. is not a pregnancy. We're not talking heartbeats. We're talking chemicals here. Yeah. Um, where I think it comes in is that again, if there's a delay, if I can't do your DNC, then I can't make the diagnosis and start the treatment plan and any delay increases the risk of persistent disease. Or and it would be if there was only a heartbeat at that point, would there would be a delay or just in general? Well, if there's a heartbeat, then that fetus is protected by the state of South Carolina. And I would, I, I, the bill doesn't, the current law doesn't it's spell a, out what to do because the, the people position. that wrote the bill have never heard of a molar pregnancy. <laughs> so there, there's no guidance, but again, it's risking a felony. So a step further, let's say cervical cancer. Have you seen that often where someone is pregnant and also now has, is diagnosed with cervical cancer? So thankfully with well, I think a lot of it is my patient population because I'm in Bougie Mount Pleasant yeah. and people have access to good health care and I see my patients every single year and we have to tell them like, no, you can't come in this month. You have to come next month because I have been a full year. Like they're very good about coming. And we have good HPV vaccination rates. And so I don't see a lot of cervical cancer, but that is my patient population. Um Again, this would be something that would be kind of co-managed between maternal fetal medicine and GYN oncology, but you got to start somewhere. So you got to present to the general OBGYN doctor at some point. And the time when most women have HPV infections and have cervical dysplasia is in their reproductive years. So this is, this is when cervical cancer is not really a disease of older women. It's a disease of reproductive age women, women in their 30s and 40s, mm -hmm. things like that. So it comes up. Cervical cancer is usually treated with excision. So you remove part of the cervix, you do a leak procedure or a cold knife cone, and those are fertility sparing options um, for people that still want to have children. Sometimes you do a hysterectomy. Sometimes the only option is to do a hysterectomy. Um, if you come in and you're pregnant, and we diagnose a cervical cancer that needs to be treated right away, the, the recommendation, and like I was tested on this as a resident and in my oral boards, they say, Dr. Gregory, what would you recommend that this patient do with a diagnosis of cervical cancer at this gestational age? And you say, I would recommend termination of pregnancy to proceed with immediate hysterectomy in the hopes of curing her cervical cancer and prolonging her life. You, it, but they have to be very specific too, because you don't want people coming in and they're like, oh my gosh, my pap smear was ascus. I'm terminating the pregnancy. And you're like, no, no, like no, whatever. I'm not, I'm not, I don't even care. I'm going to do your pap next year. It's fine. Yeah. So you don't want to freak people out, but they need to know that if they continue the pregnancy, they're, increasing the risk of not being able to be cured or potentially dying from their cancer. 
because the pregnancy is almost a year. So you're delaying treatment by a long year. Time. Well, yeah. and not only that, but you are increasing the blood flow to that cancer. You are increasing, I mean, the chance of a hemorrhage with delivery, the need for a cesarean section, like you're, it, it, a lot of the, the risks are in, increased. And so now if someone came in tomorrow, what you're being told is call this phone number to ask the legal representative. Yes. Who is not going to know anything more than me. I've read the law. And I mean, there's, there is no guidance there. What I would honestly do is tell her that you need to see a GYN oncologist for a consultation. You need to see a maternal fetal medicine doctor to discuss if you continue the pregnancy, what's that going to mean? Because basically as soon after viability as is possible and healthy, we deliver, but it's probably going to be a preterm baby and you need to know about what's entailed with the NICU stay and all that. Um, but I would probably tell them to go out of state. I'd That's probably call one of my friends in Denver and say, I, I've got a lot of resources out there. And the, for a long time, Colorado has been a place where people could come to terminate a pregnancy at a later gestational age than in other states. So you just made a really good point that I wanted to start the podcast with and we didn't. What, when a patient calls, you find out you're pregnant, Amanda knows this because she was pregnant. You find out you're pregnant, you call, what week do we bring them in? Eight weeks eight freaking weeks and yes, even then that's because like I don't want to see you before a heartbeat because you you can't tell anything I'm the perfect example of that you of guys, coming in and seeing the gestational sack and then we're like cat wait you're pregnant but I don't know if it's good or not yeah and then I have to wait and then I have to come back again and you guys are like oh this is great there's a fetal pole but we don't see a heartbeat and then I have to wait and they're like oh this is yeah this is actually horrible news sorry which has happened so many times. So we bring right. people in at eight weeks. So like the six week thing just kind of blows my mind a little bit. And can you kind of talk about from a, a provider perspective, what a six week fetal heartbeat is scientifically versus mm -hmm. maybe a 12 week heartbeat? Well, I mean, the, the development of the heart. Right. So initially, as far as what we can see with an ultrasound without like looking at it under the microscope, obviously there are implications if you're looking at it under the microscope, then it's not in the body and you've terminated the pregnancy. Um, but you first see a gestational sac and then you see a yolk sac and then you see a fetal pole and then you start to see a flicker. And that flicker sometimes can be like 40 beats a minute, 50 beats a minute, which is super terrifying if that when, is when we happen to catch you and we tell you you've got a fetus with a slow heartbeat, Been but it's completely normal. And sometimes that, I think I saw Della's heartbeat at five weeks and three days, five weeks and four days, something ridiculous. Um, she was less than two millimeters and I could see a flicker. Um, so we're looking at like, less than two weeks from a positive pregnancy test um, easily before the point when I would say most people know that they're pregnant mm -hmm. and we first see that little flicker of a heartbeat which is really just sort of electrical activity and a primitive heart 
that is starting to pump blood around. Obviously, if you're only 1.8 millimeters, you don't, it doesn't take much to pump your blood around. And then the heart continues to develop and it's not until about 12 weeks that we can hear it with a little Doppler machine on your tummy. Um, so before that, we have to do an ultrasound, typically a transvaginal ultrasound, until, I don't know, maybe nine weeks or so. And then after that, we can see on your abdomen to see more detail, we do the vaginal ultrasound because we can get a lot more precise um, images and we really need to be right on target as far as figuring out what your due date is at that early ultrasound. So there's a tiny window of opportunity between finding out that you are pregnant and when you see a fetal heartbeat on an ultrasound. Mm -hmm. A tiny window of opportunity. There is about a 0% chance that you can get an appointment even as an established patient in that window. Oh yeah. Uh, oh, completely. And I know let's talk about, so I, a family member of mine was pregnant and she lives in California. They would not scan her until 12 weeks when she, Ooh, really? went, in for, she went in for her nine week visit, refused to do a scan. They did just the typical blood work, not mm -hmm. even a beta. They just were doing blood work. She went in at her 12 week scan and the baby had stopped growing at seven and a half weeks. Mm. And that's like a devastating story has really nothing to do about, you know, mm -hmm. the heartbeat rule, but you know, like to your point, I mean, South Carolina, we're probably like the highest volume of OBGYN care in our community. And we're barely able to get you in at eight weeks. We're probably more so getting you in at like nine, unless you, you know, really push that. Yes. Yes. And there are 10 counties in South Carolina that do not have an OBGYN. We are very lucky in the Charleston area. It's a great place to live. People like to live here, but they can't recruit people to some counties. And realistically, it, it would be awful to be there by yourself. If you're there in a teeny tiny group with a teeny tiny hospital, that's a difficult job to not have the resources that you need. Mm -hmm. um, so people are driving a long time. They're waiting a long time for appointments. And I think we're really pretty good about getting people in, but our office is not the usual. No, I mean, we're seeing hundreds of patients a day between our four locations and we have over, you know, almost 15 providers, we have over 30 providers in the state. So like that's, that's a high access mm -hmm. facility, still barely able to get these people in at eight weeks. And so, I mean, even if you did get them in at six weeks and or five and a half, because it's the six week, if you got them in at five and a half, the likelihood of actually getting that DNC scheduled in two days is like less than one percent right so essentially it is an outlaw the current fetal heart rate fetal heartbeat i always say fetal heart rate fetal heartbeat bill that is our current law essentially eliminates the availability of elective terminations so then we say okay well then what are the exceptions to this rule that after there's a fetal heartbeat we can't which is what we're Terminate talking about the pregnancy. Absolutely. And like that goes yeah. into MFM has come to me and they don't know what to do. And you're mm -hmm. sitting here saying I would send them to MFM. And now MFM saying, well, we don't know what to do. Right. And we would, you know, the first comment from the point of contact for you guys has been, well, I would send them out of state, but now I know that my out of state resources do not have the, the access anymore because everybody's sending them to North Carolina, Virginia, 
um, I kind of wanted to talk about, and it, it somewhat goes into fetal anomalies, but I almost want to go into like preconception. So p women yeah. that come in, because I've had a, I've had a really hard pregnancy. I mean, you treated me in labor and delivery emergency situation. I blacked out while driving and you were incredible, but like, I can't imagine if I had pre like what, what pre what, what are the words? I'm like, preconditioned. Preterm like, premature rupture membranes. Well, that, or like, I'm talking about like, if I had a known heart problem or if I had had multiple strokes and I get pregnant, our MFM providers, their true medical thing is no, 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 no. You cannot carry a baby. Like you're going to put your life at risk. Right. But, but I think what we forget oftentimes is that you are, you increase your risk of dying by 14 times by being a healthy pregnant person. Yes. Mm -hmm. You are healthy. The, the rate of complications, serious complications from the termination of a pregnancy in the first or second trimester is less than 3%. And that includes infections requiring antibiotics, hemorrhages, um even excessive pain um like on a just a patient reporting having cramping so or less than three percent um <laughs> think about all of the the people that you know that have i mean you have a 25 percent risk of having to have a major surgery you have a risk of preeclampsia of strokes of pulmonary embolism of deep venous thrombosis of sepsis of amnionitis, you have the risk of, I don't know, kidney infections. And, and that's any woman that chooses Vaginal lacerations. I mean, I try to tell my husband all the time, this is the most dangerous state that I will ever be in being pregnant. It, oh, I, actually, Kat, it's going to be the, the first two weeks after you deliver. Please. That's so the most high risk time have you on speed dial. Yeah, yeah. So for the 10 months, but it is, I mean, women are already putting their, they're, they're putting their life at risk to have this child. And I mean, look at you guys, you do your whole podcast is how hard you've worked, how much energy and time and effort and love and money you put into wanting to put your life at risk because mm -hmm. the benefit is so great. So you know, we're, we're always, say, as, as physicians, we're trying to help you make medical decisions. We, we have to discuss the risks and the benefits and the alternatives. I don't think I would whole, have a whole lot of patients if you came for your very first visit and I told you every new OV patient, like, you're going to have a, you're going to have 14 times the risk of dying. You're going to have potentially <laughs> your vagina rip open. Um, and if I suggested termination to every pregnant woman, it would be ridiculous. Mm. Um, I think every woman that comes to a first prenatal visit knows that there were alternatives. Usually they've thought about it before they come to see me. I don't have a lot of patients that electively terminate their pregnancies. Maybe they don't tell me, maybe they, maybe they tell me that they miscarry and really they terminated. Um, but I do think that my patients most of the time seem to be pretty open with me. Um, and we do treat them with kid gloves. If they're not sure what they want to do, we'll call them every couple of days. Like, do you have any questions? Can we help you? Are you feeling okay? Like, what can we do? Um, but that, that's, that's, that every clinic doesn't have the ability to do that. So you just said something that we haven't touched on birth control. 
IUDs. Yeah. How mm -hmm. does this play into role? I mean, does this- So I, I do think that at least in the state of South Carolina, and, and this is not the same all over the country, but the law specifically says that it's not, it, it's not targeting contraception. So for example, in Tennessee, my sister lives in Tennessee and they've outlawed plan B. I mean, what, what in the world? Um, I read something about that. I know I recently, that, that, all that does is delay ovulation. So it's illegal to delay your ovulation in the state of Tennessee. Oh, that's so interesting. I didn't know that that's what it did. I knew that it didn't like actually terminate the pregnancy. It just, I was curious how that works. Yeah. It's, it's a progestin. What do we give to new pregnant women who are especially at risk of miscarrying or what did you shoot in your butt after IVF? I mean, yeah. it's progesterone. So it's not harmful to a pregnancy in any way. Um, so it, it, it just shows how the legislation doesn't make any medical sense. Um, a long time ago, like the, the reason I won't go to Hobby Lobby is because there was a Supreme Court case where after the Affordable Care Act passed, they didn't want to pay for IUDs for their employees because they believed that IUDs were abortifacient medications or that it was causing a conceptus to not implant and therefore aborting healthy babies by preventing implantation. And while the copper IUD and now the Mirena IUD can be used for emergency contraception within five days after an assault or unprotected intercourse, and the mechanism of action probably is preventing implantation, although we're not really sure, IUDs don't really function like that. So if you ask me, how does an IUD work? I would say the fallopian tubes under the um, control of or under the influence of the progesterone that's in the Mirena IUD, they stop their normal peristalsis. So normally the fallopian tubes kind of do this thing like the intestines do to kind of grab the egg and move it on down the road. So it stops that. So typically the egg would just get ovulated and then like go out into never, never land and not go down the fallopian tube. It thickens the cervical mucus so the sperm can't get in there. And then it thins the lining of the uterus so that it's not easy for the sperm to kind of swim through there because it's normally this nice lush place um, with all of these, you know, energy through throughout the way that the sperm can kind of get through there. And so it basically prevents the connection of the sperm and the egg. Um, I've had like a ridiculous number of people asking for more, either coming in for birth control or calling like refill my pills or <laughs> coming in for IUDs. Cause they were like, yeah, we were just doing like the whole pull and pray thing. But like, I'm getting scared point, now because yeah. we really don't want a baby, but IUDs are amazing. I love them. Uh, Larks. So the other lark long acting reversible contraception is the Nexplanon, which is the little rod that goes in your arm. That actually okay. has the lowest pregnancy rate of any contraception. Was it really? We do a lot of those. Um, they're easy to place. I mean, pediatricians can learn how to place them. Our nurse practitioners place a million of them. And if you want the most effective birth control that is reversible, 
it is an Esplanon. And right now it's good for three years. Pretty soon it's going to be for five, kind of like how Marina used to be good for five years and now it's good for seven. Um, so I'm telling people like, I'll place this next one on and I'm going to tell you three years, but I bet you when you come back next year, I'm going to tell you it's good for five. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've never had IUD or next one on. So that's like really interesting. Sure. Yeah. That's really interesting to learn. So, okay. Kind of going back, like you go to work, you're going to go to work tomorrow or maybe Tuesday, whatever day. No, I go to work tomorrow. Yes. You go to work tomorrow. So you're pretty much, are you still in the exact same state from two Mondays ago when this yes. passed in South Carolina? Yes. I know nothing more. Um, there's really no more guidance whatsoever. And the guy, and the guidance has been call this, call this number, call this person. But to your point, which you had an amazing, I watched your video at the state house, like your, to your point is I'm a physician. I'm working 24 seven. I'm working on Christmas. I'm working on Thanksgiving. Who do I call then? And am I, what, what's the answer? <laughs> what's the, yeah. Yeah. And like, oh, there I, was the, no answer. Yeah, they and, and we can't. And so my job for Dr. Gregory, she probably wants to kill me. <laughs> my job is to get her the answers and to get her changes in the language of her medical malpractice saying, if you make a reasonable medical decision for any of the topics we just talked about in the last hour, you are protected. And we're just not, I mean, no one's answering the phone. They're saying, well, we don't know yet. And because it's state- I don't think malpractice has ever had to worry. Do I have to cover a criminal charge? Correct. <laughs> for correct. this patient practicing per, the standard of care. Per state. Per state. Right. We're, we're not even, our company is in every state in America. So like- they can't now do these unique, I mean, they're going to have to, they're going to have to figure it out. Um, but it's just like, things keep going. These, this law is passed in South Carolina, again, speaking specific to the state of South Carolina, but these, you guys don't know what to do. You don't really know how to. And I will say there's, your, there's partners in your group that say no care in the world. I'm comfortable treating all of this. And this, you know, they're, they're like, I'm comfortable, but there's the more of you that are like, no, I don't know what to do. This is my whole life and my license and my career. And you have children and you have a husband that you don't want to go to jail. You know, well, it, when all this came out, like that first day, I like rage typed in my car to type a post on Facebook that was just like, you know what? I don't care what they say. I did not study this hard and give up like all of my 20s and my good reproductive years to learn how to do this, to have somebody else tell me what to do when I know what the right answer is to do. And I don't want politicians and politics in my exam room. I want to, there's lots of things I want in my exam room, but I do not want to discuss politics in there. Um, and I probably bring it up. To, I'll give you an example. I had a patient who had a very desired pregnancy. She had an IVF pregnancy for her first and found out that she was pregnant, surprise, when her baby's about a year, year and a half old super super excited over the moon excited and she came in for her second appointment and there wasn't a heartbeat and so i am counseling her on the options and option number one is expectant management let's wait and see and your body might take care of this on its own but i can't predict when it's going to happen option two is medical management the standard of care is mifepristone one dose followed by um, mesoprostol 24 hours later. It's the exact same protocol for a medical termination of pregnancy. 
the state has so many hoops to jump through to be able to become a prescriber for mifepristone. Um, and so since I've been practicing in this state, I haven't had access to mifepristone. I only use mesoprostol. So there are protocols for only mesoprostol, but there's a higher incidence of completed abortion if you use the mifepristone as well. Um, but it, it has to be administered by somebody who witnesses the person take it. They still have to sign the forms that say that I understand that this is a termination of pregnancy. They have to sign the same forms for the state of South Carolina. They have to have that like 24 hour waiting period. It, and so it's not really feasible and I'm, I'm working on getting that, but I told this couple option number two is medical management and the right medical management is not available to you. I'm sorry. Our next best is this other one. Um, and then our third option is to do a DNC. And the guys, especially this guy was like, what? You mean you can't just write a prescription for that and we can pick it up at CVS? I'm like, no, sir, I cannot. He's like, so my wife's not getting the best care that she could get because of red tape and anti-abortion stuff. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, but this is not an abortion. I'm like, I know that. And there's actually lots of different types of abortion. So abortion is a medical term. A spontaneous abortion is a spontaneous pregnancy loss. A septic abortion is an infection that causes a pregnancy loss. Um, there's a threatened abortion when you have bleeding in early pregnancy. Mm -hmm. always have to really, really tell my patients like, hey, it's going to say on your chart, threatened abortion. <laughs> That's, That's because you're bleeding in pregnancy. It. Yes, I know the same thing. I saw it and I was like, wait a second, what does this mean? But yeah. Right. Terrifying. If you don't know, I'm like, yeah. it's going to say in your chart, threatened abortion. It's just because you had some bleeding. It's okay. It's just a code. Yep. Um, yeah, I have six SABs in my chart sponsored yeah. abortion yeah and right. it's like somebody that's trying so hard it's the worst thing to have to like, see yeah yes but it so is we call them therapeutic abortions or elective terminations yes um and you know we don't we don't say it, all of the letters or words of anything that we do in obstetrics so we abbreviate everything so when i was in residency a tab was a threatened abortion but a lot of times that meant a termination abortion for some I people. actually just had to I just had a compliance case on Thursday what is it today Sunday for somebody one of the physicians in South Carolina it was not in Charleston wrote TAB in the chart and now mm -hmm. it's being investigated by compliance because they feel like she was a part of a term an elective termination because um, she that's because the she that's how I learned to abbreviate it was threatened abortion it's a medical term yeah and it's you know and it's because of everything's being so monitored so closely and and this one was reported from a nurse on the floor of the hospital to the ceo that you know and it to each his own that was she felt very strongly about it and you know it's all closed and everything's fine and everything was done medically appropriately but the resources that it's taking to go into each one of these cases and all that kind of stuff i mean it's just crazy and i mean like for well, and your privacy who's your that nurse shouldn't have been looking in that woman's chart. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, that's a HIPAA violation. 
Yeah. Nobody should be looking in your chart. Nobody should, nobody should be talking about that. That is not any of their business. Like and, I don't want it, them reading about a hemorrhoid or a domestic violence or like yeah. there's so many things that you don't want somebody reading in your chart. Yeah. And going back to your, and I'm going to say side attack. Is that the same? Is that the off brand? He's of, a prostolist side attack. Okay. So like my man and I both have gone through that process and like, I know it's awful. It's, it's, it's Literally. way worse than a DNC. I would never do it again, but we're talking about being privileged, privileged white woman in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina that can afford a $5,000 DNC. Where was when we went to the pharmacy to pick up the Cytotec, it was $5. Yes. And it was $5. And you, we, I'm actually not a patient of, or I wasn't at the time a patient of your office. I was a totally different office. They legally could not insert it for me i had to do it myself at my house because they we we don't have clearance to do that in the office because of abortion rules and so i had to do that at my house by myself and they're like you could hemorrhage out so make sure you have someone with you 24 7 and you can call 911 if you bleed too much and it's just we're kind of comforting so there are multiple instances in fact it's probably more of the norm now especially the last couple of weeks of as doctors writing prescriptions for medical treatment for missed abortions and the pharmacy refusing to fill it or the pharmacy calling back to confirm it um i've had a very very irate husband in the middle of cvs about to throw down because the pharmacist wouldn't fill his wife's prescription um even with doctors writing on the prescription this is treatment for a missed abortion mm-hmm. Which is heartbreaking. They won't, they won't feel it. Yeah. The worst thing is for like your husband to have to go to CVS for you because you're bawling in the car and then they come out and say, sorry, I can't get it. You have to wait a little bit longer. Yeah. So, you know, pharmacists aren't really allowed to do that. And so I do warn patients again, when I do bring politics in, I tell them, you call me if you can't get this prescription filled. If they, you know, there, there's always times when they have to order it or can refer you to a different cvs or walgreens or whatever but you let me know if you have a problem filling this prescription so so we had someone write in and say what can patients or or people do to help support advocates like yourself like or physicians or just what can people do in the community to help get this cleared up is there even anything i mean it vote when this goes back to the states no, nobody pays attention, myself included, to these state elections. I don't know who that redheaded guy was who asked me the question, and I'm not going to bother looking him up. Although somebody did send me his cell phone number and don't think I'm not calling him in the middle of the night the next time I have a question. Um, but for we have to pay attention to those yeah. races. I said, for those of you that don't know, you were questioned with your testimony and you were the only female OBGYN to speak that day, correct? Up to that point? Um, well, there was a, a pediatric OBGYN, the lady that, she was also a minister, which was unusual, but there was you one other. The only one to be questioned was yeah, the I, I don't know if they asked anybody else a question. They, I do not think they did. And the rest of them were men that were <laughs> advocating. Um, but yeah, I thought we'll share that somehow, just your video of you sharing, you know, your testimony. And you should call him at two in the morning. <laughs> yeah, right. I've got his number now. Um, just in case I need somebody in the state legislature to let me know how to proceed. Um, yeah. 
Um, did you want to talk about PROM? Or yeah, absolutely. I don't one know. One of the things that, that I thought I might be particularly pertinent. Yeah, was, absolutely. Um, multiple gestations. So I know that with fertility treatments, um, more so when we were probably using more Clomid and doing multiple transfers. Um, and then since Octomom, that what's her name, Angela Suleiman, who had eight babies and her yeah. doctor lost his license for doing that. Um, oh yeah, it, there've been a lot of changes in the kind of the rules for reproductive endocrinology um, for embryo transfers. Well, I know, I know when, we, when we went through it for, for the specific clinic I was at in South Carolina, you had to be 35 and over to transfer more than one embryo um, or I don't even, I think that was it for my clinic or your statistical results of a live birth had to be like less than 2%. And so then they yeah. would do two. I don't know. I mean, yeah. similar. Ours was, I know is 35 and older. And then I think if you had a certain amount of like failed IVF transfers, they would then transfer more than one. But I couldn't, mm -hmm. I can't remember how many you had to like go through that were mm -hmm. failed. Right. So it's a big deal to be pregnant with more than one baby at a time. It increases the risk of complications for moms and babies dramatically and it goes up exponentially as the number of babies increases so you know there have been a lot of tv shows about people like john and kate plus eight she had those are clomid babies and um five babies at a time or well, she had six babies at a time, plus the twins. I, I cannot imagine. I wanted twins so, so, so bad before I got pregnant. Just having this one baby inside me, I can't imagine having more than one. Mm -hmm. I, can't, I can't. So then you think about, I mean, I, I've had also had patients that got one embryo put in and it split and they got twins yeah. and they're yeah. identical and it's amazing. Um, but anytime you're doing any kind of art, advanced reproductive technology, there's always a risk of multiple. So when I counsel patients about using letrozole or using Clomid, I always counsel them that this is supposed to work and ideally it would work for you to ovulate one egg and everything would just happen perfectly. But sometimes it works too well and you ovulate more than one. Sometimes in these ovulation induction cycles, they'll have to cancel the cycle or tell you like, don't go have sex because you have way too many follicles right now. Um, but it happens um and people get pregnant with more babies than is healthy it happens spontaneously as well and i'm obligated to counsel you obviously i as a generalist would not be managing these higher order multiples but you would have to have a conversation at some point about your chances of bringing home a live baby or babies will increase if you reduce the pregnancy and so that's a conversation that really needs to happen before you get to that point. And I mean, obviously, if it's spontaneous quads, you can't really prepare for that. But going into any kind of fertility treatments, you need to know what would you do in a situation if you did get triplets and one of them was not healthy? Would you feel morally and ethically okay reducing and and knowing what that would involve um that's what my aunt said what'd you say my aunt went through that um she like had struggled with fertility and this is obviously now going back 
I don't know what, 20 years ago, but, um, right. And they were, they weren't as good at it. Yeah. And so she then winded up having, I think there were six babies. She did Clomid six. Then she had to do, um, selective reduction and kept three. Mm -hmm. And then she lost one of them. And now she has like, I have twin cousins, but Mm -hmm. it's well, and if your aunt were to get pregnant in the state of South Carolina right now, she would carry those six babies and more likely than not would lose all of them before viability. Yeah. And you would not have twin cousins. Yeah, it's true. That's harsh. Yeah. Now, when you think about it, it it's harsh to think about sacrificing one child for the sake of another. Mm -hmm. That's brutal. That's brutal for people that desperately want children. But that's a hard decision that I can't imagine making myself. And I can't imagine me telling somebody else what to do. I can't imagine the government telling somebody else what to do. Because that, again, we talk about the huge sacrifice that it is to have a baby and to physically carry a child, but to do something like that and know that it might all be for naught. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I wanted to talk about it, but I don't know if we have time. Just like somebody, we just use myself as an example, who has been through so much loss. And then to say, uh, let's say at 20 weeks was, and I don't, that's like, this isn't a great example, but to say I was diagnosed at some point after six weeks with a fetal anomaly and that there was zero chance, like fetal anencephaly, is that, am I saying that right? Yes. There was no chance that this baby is going to ha- going to live more than a couple days Right. that I would then be forced to carry that pregnancy and have to go through the mental trauma of that. And my pregnancy has been very dangerous for me, not only with the hyperemesis, but like you just treated me driving mm-hmm. and like blacking out. I could have killed myself. I could have killed somebody else. I could have killed myself and the baby. Yes. I mean, that is a whole other, I don't think we have time to talk about it, but that right now, am I correct? You cannot terminate a pregnancy with fetal anomalies in South Carolina to right now. Well, it's unclear. Okay. I, didn't, I don't know. I'm it has that. to be, has to really probably be something imminent. So one of the ladies that spoke um, the other day for, you know, that who testified in front of the House of Representatives, she was there adorable, all big and cute and almost term pregnant. And her previous pregnancy, she had learned at like 34 weeks that her baby had a, a actually a, a brain cancer and that the head was getting giant and it was growing like by the day. And instead of being able to deliver her then, um, MUSC didn't know what to do with her. So they told her she just had to stay pregnant. So she eventually required a classical cesarean, which means she'll always have to have all of her babies preterm and she'll always have to have cesarean sections. And her baby lived for a few hours. Um, and she said she spent weeks in the hospital knowing her baby was going to die and being told there was nothing she can do about it. Um, I do think that there might be a way to maybe get a judge to get around that, but how traumatic for everybody involved to have to go through the court system or to have to go to multiple doctors. The thing is with, with fetal anencephaly, the brain stem works just fine. 
And so the baby is not at risk of imminent death. They have a good, strong heartbeat. They have a respiratory drive, but they have no quality of life. Now, there are some women who say, so my, my dad's associate minister in the church when I was growing up in Tennessee, she, she had a pregnancy and had a, an encephalic baby. And she was given the option to terminate and chose to carry the baby to term. And she said that I can live with the grief more easily than I can live with the guilt. And that's, that's kind of heartbreaking. And I respect, I respect her position. Absolutely. But I think that that's not a position that everybody would choose. I think she probably also had a lot of pressure on her because of her position as a female pastor Mm -hmm. that if it got word got out that she terminated a pregnancy I don't think that would be very good um but there are a lot of moms that say I want my baby to be born and to hear my voice and to I want to feel their skin on my skin and I want them to know that we love them and there are some moms that say maybe I've, I've buried a baby before or I've lost nine pregnancies or I'm 39 and this is my last chance Mm -hmm. or, you know, we, we only have one more embryo and we only have one more shot or there's so many different reasons. Ultimately it's, it's not my decision to make. And if I can't even put myself in that position and imagine what I would choose, I have a hard time understanding how the state can tell somebody what to do doesn't even have to be included in the podcast, but I just wanted to kind of share with you um, how I sort of reconcile my faith as a Christian with termination of pregnancy and abortion and all that that is. And there's a really great book, um, A Moral Argument for Choice by Dr. Willie Parker. And he's this African-American abortion provider in the South. Um, but he's also a very strong Christian. Mm-hmm. And I guess this is sort of like my conversion secondhand through him that he tells a story about listening to Dr. Martin Luther King give a sermon about the good Samaritan. And that, you know, there was a, a, a man that fell in with thieves and was on the side of the road and the priest walked past him and the Levite walked past him and the person that we're supposed to emulate walked past him and said, not what will happen to me if I help this man, but what will happen to this man if I don't help him Mm. and that we're supposed to try and treat our fellow man like that and put others before ourselves. Yeah. And so I did not set out with a life goal of becoming any kind of OBGYN spokesperson or activist. This was not at all how I thought that this would unfold. Yeah. But I feel almost a responsibility because if there is a woman who has fallen in with thieves, whatever the case may be, if she's in front of me, and she needs my help and I have the skills and the knowledge to help her. I would be embarrassed of myself if I didn't help her. 
Yeah. So that's also, it goes to show you that there are different ways to interpret the scriptures, because I'm sure that there would be a lot of people that would argue with me about that, but that's sort of where I come from there. Yeah. Well, I appreciate, and I don't know if Kat's going to be able to jump back on. She texted me and she says that her internet's fully out. Can you guys? Oh, I think back. she's back. Oh, JK. <laughs> I, like, I, I, like, I think she's not coming back on. I thought it was you guys, but then my whole computer shut down. So. Oh, no. <laughs> Oh, well, I appreciate you sharing that with me. And I would love to, that book, if you could tell me it again, what is it called? It's called A Moral Argument for Choice by Dr. Willie Parker. I'm so going to um, read that. I definitely am. That's really it's not really long. It's good. I don't know what I missed, but it sounds like I, we're good. Well, I was, I was telling her kind of like how I've reconciled my faith and my very strong Christian views with all of this abortion talk. Awesome. Because I don't think that those positions are mutually exclusive. That's also my personal opinion, but I didn't hear your side of it. So I will just, I'll listen to it when it airs. Thank you so right, much cool. for being here and talking about all of this. I know it's just messy and there's a bunch, of, it's just not black and white. And like you said, it's like yeah. just the pause and not knowing what to do. And you're not saying that these laws don't allow for these things, but you're saying that these laws, we don't know what they allow for. And it's really on right. your shoulders to figure it out every single day, every single patient that walks into your, your care and you're trying to make your best decision. Right. So we, we do our best, but you shouldn't have to worry what is your doctor's position when you're going in for care. You should really feel comfortable that no matter who your doctor is, that they're going to tell you about all of the different options. Completely agree. Well, thank you so much for doing this with us today. Thank you. Well, thank you for this podcast and for everything that you guys are doing for people that are going through fertility things. I think it's a super isolating time, and this is a really, really great resource for women and men and families. And I love that you guys are doing this. <laughs>